This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is James Diggle. James is Emeritus Professor of Greek and Latin at the University of Cambridge, and he's a Fellow of the British Academy. We're talking to James today about his new publication, publication of which he is Editor-in-Chief, the Cambridge Greek Lexicon, a landmark two-volume work published by Cambridge University Press, earlier this year. It's garnered enormous press attention and it's wonderful to have James here today to be able to speak to this project. So James, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Crawford. It's wonderful to have you here. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are an emeritus professor at Cambridge and you've been at Cambridge for, I think, all of your career in higher education. Could you tell us something about some of the highlights of your career and perhaps the significance of your Fellowship in the British Academy. Well, my uh, interests are on the literary and linguistic side of classics, uh, primarily Greek, but I do some Latin too. Uh, my main work was on the text of uh, Euripides, which I published in three volumes for OUP um, quite some time uh, ago. I got into uh, the current work on the lexicon, uh, not really by choice. I'll explain a little more fully uh, in in a few moments. But um, the last 15 years or so, it really took over my life. It was something that I never expected to do, but uh, I enjoyed uh, the challenge of doing it. Wonderful. And uh, when I when I describe it as a, a landmark volume, it, it is a massive project, isn't it? We can see that and hopefully we'll be able to pick up some of the detail of how that project was planned, executed and eventually published. So, James, could you tell us a little bit about how the project began? It, it took 15 years or so, but, but what was the origin of this and how did you come to inherit this project? Yes, to, to explain the nature and the purpose of the lexicon, I need to go back to its origins and say something of the way in which it evolved over the years. Uh, and before I do that, um, I must say something about the lexicon which it is designed to replace. In 1843, two young Oxford scholars, uh, Henry Liddell and George Scott, edited what is still the fundamental Greek-English lexicon used by scholars. It goes 
is under their name, Little and Scott's Greek Lexicon. They both had very distinguished careers. Uh, Little finished up as Dean of Christchurch and Scott Master of Balliol. And during their long lives, extending almost to the end of the 19th century, they published eight further editions of this landmark uh, lexicon. And after their deaths, a ninth edition was published between 1925 and 1940. And after that, two further supplements were published. Now, in 1879, uh, no, 1897, an abridged version of the parent lexicon was published. It was based on the edition of the parent lexicon then current, the seventh, which had been published seven years before. This abridged lexicon has, unlike its parent, never been revised. And yet, after 130 years, it remains the lexicon which is still most commonly used by students in English schools and universities. So, we come on to 1997. John Chadwick, then a lecturer in classical philology in Cambridge, had the idea of replacing that intermediate lexicon. Now, John Chadwick is probably generally known as the collaborator with Michael Ventris on the decipherment of Linear B. Before that, however, he had served for six years on the editorial staff of the Oxford Latin Dictionary. And towards the end of his life, he returned to lexicography, and he was appointed to a committee overseeing the publication of one of the revised supplements to Little and Scott. In 1997, he suggested to the Faculty Board of Classics in Cambridge that it should oversee a project to revise that abridged, intermediate, Little and Scott. An editor was appointed, and I was asked to chair an advisory committee. It was hoped that the work might be completed within five years. So, why has it taken us 23 years? <clears throat> Before I answer that question, there's another question that I'd like to address. How do you go about compiling a new dictionary? Not just a, a dictionary of Greek, but a dictionary of any language. There are just two ways of doing it. The most economical way is to base yourself on what has gone before, then correct and supplement it. That was the method of Little and Scott and of its subsequent revisers. The first edition of Little and Scott in 1843 was based on a, a German Greek lexicon. But there's a weakness in this kind of dictionary making. For example, if you base yourself on your predecessors, the structure of an article may remain unchanged, 
old material may be taken on trust and not re-examined. Supplementary material is apt to be added piecemeal. And translations sometimes live on in English that has become antiquated. So that's the first and the simplest way of doing it. The other way is to start again from scratch. First, gather your own material by reading the texts afresh. Enter the material on slips of paper and then put the slips in order. Now, this was the method of Samuel Johnson, whose Dictionary of the English Language was the product of his own unaided reading, though he needed six helpers to copy the quotations he'd marked in his books. And it took him eight years. This was the method of the Oxford Latin Dictionary, which employed in all 17 editors over a period of 35 years. Above all, this was the method of the Oxford English Dictionary, which employed an army of volunteer readers and took 70 years. So, to return finally to my question, why did we take 23 years? Because as soon as work began, it became clear that the plan as originally conceived was unworkable. The intermediate lexicon of 1889 was even less satisfactory than we and John Chadwick had imagined. It could not be revised. It would have to be completely rewritten. So, following John Chadwick's sudden death in 1998, the faculty board agreed to a proposal that I made that we should compile a new and independent lexicon. This would still be of intermediate size and designed primarily to meet the needs of modern students, but it would also be designed to be of interest to scholars, insofar as it would be based upon a fresh reading of the Greek texts and on principles differing from those of L.S. Little and Scott. It was originally conceived as a volume of 1,200 pages, but it's finally grown to over 1,500 and is published in two volumes. And, may I add, at the bargain price of £64.95. Wonderful, James. Now, you mentioned there the, the, the De Novo um, approach to reading as much as you could, for members of the team to read as much as they could, to pull together as wide a corpus uh, the evidence of as wide a corpus as possible. So just exactly how wide was the reading of the team? How much of um, Greek literature were you able to, to, to represent in this project? The coverage of Greek literature extends from Homer to the early 2nd century AD. Um, the last author we include is Plutarch, uh, just his lives, not the voluminous uh, Moralia in, uh, in addition. We include all of the major authors who fall within that period, and some of the minor ones, and a good many new texts unknown to Little and Scott. For some authors whose works are voluminous, we cover only the parts which students are likely to encounter. Take as an example Aristotle. We cover only the Nicomachean and Eudemian ethics, the poetics, the politics, the rhetoric, the constitution, 
of Athens. We also include not the whole of the New Testament, but just the Gospels and Acts, to have included the whole of the New Testament, as Midland Scott, the parent lexicon, does, would entail the inclusion of a great deal of often very difficult material, which was best left to be covered by the specialised New Testament lexicon, which are already in existence. And we don't include epigraphical material or documentary papyri. We had to have an eye to cost, the availability of time, and the need to produce the kind of lexicon that would be of greatest benefit to students. Affordability, serviceability and portability uh, were our watchwords, and I think we have achieved all three. And the end result is a, a beautiful and very accessible, usable text. It's, it's, it's a really extraordinary achievement. Well, in the midst of all of that working, uh, well, expanding the corpus under consideration, James, were there any words that you found particularly difficult to annotate? Uh, yes, uh, there were indeed. Um, I can give you an example, but perhaps as a lead-in to that, uh, I ought to give some indication of one thing that I've already touched upon. That is, um, some of the ways in which our methodology differs from that of uh, Lidl and Scott. And this will explain what I'll go on to say in a moment. the differences uh, in, 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 the, in the treatment of one particularly difficult word. We differ from Little and Scott in numerous ways. I just mentioned two of the most significant ones. First, we don't organize entries according to chronological or grammatical criteria, as Little and Scott normally do. In other words, we don't automatically start with a Homer, the earliest author, or with the active voice before getting to the middle or passive, or put constructions with the accusative case before constructions with the genitive or dative case. Instead, we organize entries according to sense. We aim to show the developing senses of words and the relationships between those senses. So we begin with the root sense of a word, which may well not appear in the earliest author who uses that word, but in some later author. And then in numbered sections, we trace the application of that word in the different contexts in which it appears. A second methodological difference is that in addition to offering bare translations of words, we give explanatory definitional phrases Now, you may wonder, what's the difference between a definition and a translation? A definition gives the general sense of a word, and it may be applicable to a word in a variety of contexts. A translation reflects the meaning of the word in a specific context. And on the page, we make a visual distinction between these two by giving the definition in Roman font and the translation in bold. Let me give you an example which illustrates both our use of definitional phrases and the way we trace developing senses. I'll take a very simple, familiar adjective, the adjective kalos. It's the word, it's the the, the Greek word 
word that uh, underlies um, a few English words, calligraphy, for example. If somebody asks you what the word kalos means in one English word, you will probably say beautiful. Fair enough. But you need to consider what kinds of noun this adjective kalos is applied to and whether it's necessary to introduce other translations that suit it better. And once you look at this word in its contexts, you'll see how many different shades of meaning it can have. So, our section one begins with a definition in Roman font. Beautiful in appearance. That is the root sense, the sense from which all other senses are derived. And then we list the subjects to which the adjective is applied in this sense. Of men, women, deities, animals, their bodies. Then we offer three translation words in bold font. Not just beautiful, but also handsome and good-looking. Then in section two, we bring in a different kind of noun. Of places, features of the natural world. The original definition, beautiful in appearance, is still applicable, but not all of the original translations will suit. So we bring in a different one. Beautiful, fair. Then in section three, we move from natural things to created things. Of created things, such as clothes, weapons, buildings, with the translations, beautiful, handsome, fine. Eventually, we move away from beauty altogether to a more general sense, to which the rather elaborate explanatory definition reads, as a term of general commendation of things or circumstances, good in terms of quality, practical usefulness, or capacity to satisfy or give pleasure. And here we offer the translations, good, excellent, fine. When we get to section nine, we find that we've moved to something decidedly different when the adjective acquires a moral connotation in application to things said or done, where the translations are good, noble, honourable, fitting, proper. Now, James, the, the, there's a, one, that's a wonderful example there in Kalos of the care and particularity uh, with which the editorial team approached this project. Uh, did you have any ambition to move beyond Little and Scott in also thinking about the Englishing of these Greek words? <laughs> yes. Uh, one significant way in which we differ from Little and Scott is that um, they are rather coy in translating or explaining uh, certain words. But we use contemporary English, even for words which brought a blush to Victorian cheeks. Uh, Little and Scott could have claimed in the words of Edward Gibbon, my English is chaste. And all licentious passages are left in the obscurity of a learned language. Well, we spare no blushes. We don't, for example, translate 
the verb hezdo as ease oneself, do one's need. We simply translate it as to shit. We don't translate the verb be neo, like little and Scott, as of illicit intercourse, coire, in ire, the two Latin verbs. You're just supposed to give the sense of it. We simply translate it by the F word. <laughs> and a particularly crude verb is lycasdo. Translated by Little and Scottus to wench, whatever that's supposed to mean, we define it as perform fellatio and translate it by an expression which is so crude, I think I'd better leave it on the printed page. Thank you, James. That gives us, I think, a very vivid sense of uh, uh, the, the, the ambition of the Englishing of, 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 of these, uh, some of these terms. Well, as you mentioned before, it's, it's a massive project, both in terms of length, 1,500 pages, two volumes, um, in chronological length, stretching really from the late 1990s almost until um, this year. But can you tell us about some of the challenges of running this project? Um, did you use technology to, 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 to pull the words together? Did, did you stick with paper slips through the entire project? Or was there a time when it had to get a little bit more complicated? Yes, it would not have been possible to do what we did, which is to reread pretty well the whole of Greek literature, uh, without technological assistance. Something that no earlier lexicographers, I think probably in any language, had been able to make use of. Uh, right at the very beginning of the project, we linked ourselves to the Perseus project, which comes from um, uh, Arizona. Uh, they have an enormous uh, website uh, on which they've got most classical texts and also uh, translations of them. And one of the team helped us to compile a database of our own, which would include all the words that we intended to put in our lexicon, linked to the translations on their, uh, their site. This was an enormous help in the early stages, but it was eventually superseded by something much more uh, valuable. That is an electronic database of the whole of Greek literature that comes from the University of Irvine in California called the Thesaurus Linguae Graecae. And at the touch of a computer button, using that thesaurus, you can conjure up every single word in Greek, and you can perform certain quite uh, complicated operations, enabling you to look up every single form that you might be interested in of a particular word. So this revolutionized uh, dictionary making for us. It was because of that that our ambitions became uh, gradually more and more um, uh, 
we saw what could be done, and so we decided that uh, we must do it. And this is one of the reasons why it took us so long. Mm. Well, as 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 we follow your advice, James, to go out to buy this very compact and reasonably priced groundbreaking text, how how will we be able to use this lexicon to help us read Greek texts in practical ways? I think if you're a student for whom the lexicon is primarily designed, it is going to be very much more usable and certainly very, very much more reliable and very much more informative than the intermediate lexicon and indeed than the parent lexicon. The parent lexicon, the original Little and Scott, now in its 10th edition, 9th edition with supplements, is still irreplaceable and will still be used by scholars. But it's an unwieldy thing and it's something that students find very difficult uh, to use. The layout that we chose with a diversity of uh, type uh, fonts enables the reader to navigate his way through sometimes quite lengthy and complex articles in a very much easier manner than they will be able to do in using either the big lexicon or its or its abridgment. I mean, maybe I should just give you one example uh, where I think that our structuring of articles um, serves the student particularly well. Let me take one of the very commonest words in Greek, that is the verb echo, uh, have or hold. Now, our entry for this verb occupies three and a half columns, and it runs to 55 numbered sections. Now, if a verb has as many applications as this, you need to provide the reader with signposts to show how you've organized the material, to show that you've organized the numbered sections in groups, and to show that these groups follow logically one from the other. So here is our introductory summary of the groups. Sections one to three hold by physical contact. From the physical, we move to the less physical. Section four, hold in one's possession. Then to the non-physical, beginning in section 15, as for example in expressions like have thoughts or have consequences. And you'll notice that this development is marked by a shift of sense from hold to have. There's also a distinct group from section 29 onwards in which the sense is hold back, constrain, restrain. And finally, there's a group of intransitive uses. I mean, illustrated perhaps by in English, the expression, the wall holds. And a group of senses in the middle voice. Now, this introductory summary, which is something that you don't get in Little and Scott, makes it easier for the reader to 
navigate through what is a very long and complex article. If you were to compare our treatment with that of Little and Scott, there, for the word echo, you will find several columns of densely packed material with little to guide you through it. The labyrinth of Minos was more easily penetrable than many an article of Little and Scott. Well, Professor James Diggle, Editor-in-Chief of the Cambridge Creek Lexicon, it's been a pleasure to be able to speak to you today about this wonderful project and to have you guide us through its origins, its development, and some of the ways in which the final product can help us read some of these texts. So thank you so much. Thank you for your work, and thank you for being willing to speak about it. It's been a great pleasure talking. And thank you to everyone else for listening in today. I will see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies channel on the New Books Network podcast.